Hey, Randy, do you remember when we recorded the pilot episode for this podcast? I do. We were awful. Our guest was Kate Leto, executive coach for product leaders, and she wasn't awful, but we never aired it, thankfully. And then we got much better and we invited her back when her book came out. And that was a pretty good episode. So good that when we had the right topic, we wanted to invite her back again. And today's the day for that. That's right. If you want to learn more about how to use coaching tools to improve the way you lead, Kate's one of the best people around to talk to. She's even got a course on the topic, which starts on the 19th of March. Check out the show notes for more info. Right. And one of the best ways to lead better is to stop wasting time on unimportant conversations. So no more intro. Let's chat to Kate. The Product Experience is brought to you by Mind the Product. Every week on the podcast, we talk to the best product people from around the globe. Visit mindtheproduct.com to catch up on past episodes and discover loads of free resources to help you with your product practice. You can also find more information about Mind the Products conferences and their great training opportunities happening around the world and online. Create a free account on the website for a fully personalized experience and to get access to the full library of awesome content and the weekly curated newsletter. Mind the Product also offers free product tank meetups in more than 200 cities. There's probably one near you. Hi, Kate. Welcome back to the product experience for technically the third time, although this is our second time doing an actual interview that we're going to put out with you. Yes, thank you very much. I was, I just to fill everybody in on the story, I think it was one of your very first kind of practice pods back yeah. in the day, like about four years ago or so. Not one of the first, the very first. The very first. And we were all so awful at it. You you happily decided not to release it. So we'll see how far we've come tonight. But it's so cool to be on with you guys again after all of that time. Oh, uh, yeah. No, we're, we were so grateful back then for you being our guinea pig. And it's definitely very nice to have you back tonight. Um, so. Before we get stuck into our topic, though, let's have a quick chat about who you are, um, for those that don't know you, um, a real quick dive into um, how you got into product and also what you're up to these days. Sure. Okay. So as with everyone, it's a bit of a journey, isn't it? It's a bit of a tale. <laughs> so I have been in and around product for over 25 years now <laughs> to really age myself. I got into it kind of by accident, like everybody else did. Um, I started out doing marketing and communications for startups back in the late 1990s in Chicago and somehow found my way getting into product. And I ended up at Yahoo in, in Sunnyvale, so Silicon Valley, doing product marketing and then moving into product. And that actually brought me to London um, which was supposed to be for three months to launch local search in Europe, back when there was local search and Yahoo in Europe. Um, <laughs> and that turned into me staying in London for about 16 years. What, I didn't stay with Yahoo. I um, ended up going to a, what was a startup at the time called Moo.com, 
which was a really cool early stage startup in what is now known as um, Silicon Roundabout. We are right at Old Street, way before Old Street had anything going on, if, if all of you are, are familiar with the London startup scene. Um, and I was with Moo for about three years and was there, I was their first head of product and I was only, also their first product manager. So I had one of those jobs. But nice. thankfully, thankfully, it grew and Moo has done very well and Moo is still around. I left in 2011 and I've been an independent, initially consultant and then advisor and now coach since then. So I left Moo to go do my own startup, kind of like everybody was doing at, at that point. And instead, I started doing some consulting for VC companies um, to do to help their portfolio companies figure out what product is, um, how to build products, how to hire product people, how to think about it from the very beginning. And I really liked it. So I just kept doing that. And that turned into helping big organizations want to learn how startups were building products. So mm -hmm. I kind of went through the whole digital transformation roller coaster um, for quite some time. And then probably in about 2016, 2017, I realized that a lot of my clients, well, we'd start a conversation around something that had to do directly with product, you know, a product strategy question or measurement or interviewer, client interviewing or customer interviewing or even hiring questions. But like about five minutes in, the question would suddenly become quite personal <laughs> in nature. You know, things like, you know, I don't think my boss likes me. My team won't listen to me. I can't figure out how to get them motivated. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if I even want to be doing this with my life. And I didn't feel like I was equipped to actually answer those questions well. <laughs> so I went and got trained as a coach. Not to become a coach at that time. I just wanted to learn the skills and bring it into my kind of consulting toolbox. And that was about, that was very early 2017. And then as you guys well know, the pull in coaching for product has just exploded over the last few years, but so has the different kind of types of coaching. You know, there's so many different segments and definitions of it. You know, there's OKR coaches or discovery coaches or design sprint coaches that we work with as well. There's just everything under the sun has a coach. And so I've actually gone back and gotten additional accreditation and training through Berkeley for executive coaching. And for me and what I do now, that means that I don't work with product leaders to help them upskill their product skills anymore. I don't work, mm -hmm. help them figure out how to write a strategy, but I do help them develop their leadership skills. Because based on my experience and my work with clients over the last few years, you know, leadership is an area where we can't just pick up a book and figure it out, right? It's, yeah. it's a thing that you're not really trained on in school. You're, you don't sit down and kind of just read about it and start to act that way. It requires some additional, a lot of additional thought and consideration and communication and conversations. And that's what I provide. So I work with product leaders and executives now in developing skills like communication um, and dealing with conflict and stakeholder management and influencing up and down and all around. Um, so that's the work that I do now. So I don't work with people, with product leaders on product skills. I work with them on leadership development skills. And I know that one of the things you've also been working on at the moment is um, putting together a course for product leaders to learn coaching themselves. So we will link to, 
to that course in the show notes. I think it starts on the 19th of February. Is that right? 19th of March. So coming soon. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for mentioning it. Yeah. It's, it's a course designed to help product leaders bring in some essential coaching skills to the way that they work with their team members, the way that they communicate with their, with their peers. Um, you don't leave being a coach, but you leave having a better understanding of the skills and how you can put them to use. And this is one of the things that I was really keen for us to talk about today on the, the podcast, because I think everyone feels the, the pull for coaching, like everyone understands what it can do for them and what it's for, but we don't necessarily hear a lot about the very practical elements of using different coaching techniques and different scenarios. So um, hopefully this episode of the podcast, we're going to be very practical and we're going to like dig into some very specific coaching techniques that you can apply to different situations. And on that note, let's start with the first one. Okay, cool. So (laughs) No, I think this is great because like you said, it's hard for people to understand what coaching is until they do it. Um, So hopefully this can demystify a lot of the the coaching conundrum, I guess. Yeah. I I want to point out one other thing, not only until they do it, but also until they've had good coaching. Yeah. It makes a massive difference. I I keep telling people, people come to me all the time and say, how do I get to be a coach? I'm interested in being it. And the first question I ask them is, have you ever had good coaching to to see what it's like? Yeah. 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 Um, And I know Randy and I both have been coached and have coached other people so we were having a chat about what kind of comes up quite often and one of the first things that we were thinking about was basic kind of stakeholder management or or people management you know in your role and in your job and in your work you can have advocates and detractors when it comes to stakeholders so how do you coach people to deal with their detractors yeah it's a really good question um so There's a couple of different things. I think the first thing that I would start out with is when somebody brings up an experience, something that's recently happened where they feel like maybe a stakeholder or their manager or maybe even somebody on their team is is taking that detractor role, to ask them a very simple question, and that's, is it true? Is it true? And it's so short and simple, but asking, and I think we'll hopefully have a chance later to talk more about powerful questioning and coaching and what a big role that plays um, in in an engagement and in a coaching conversation. Mm -hmm. But asking them that question around, is it true? And then usually what happens um, is someone just kind of sits and thinks about it for a minute. And the the honest response is usually, I don't know. It feels like it. But then my follow-up question is, what evidence do you have? So let's really try to be as factual as we can in these conversations, because we've all done this. I do this all the time as well, is we have stories built up in our head around um, how somebody might have behaved, the tone in their voice, the look in their eye, you know, and that tells us that this person isn't on our side and that they might be an adversary or a, a detractor. And so that's, that's my immediate first go-to question in that situation is, is it true? And let's talk about that and find out what evidence you have. And then how can we find out if it is true? You know, a lot of coaching, as you guys have probably experienced as well, is kind of like product. We come up with a hypothesis and then we try to prove or disprove it, or we try new things to try to build new habits, right? 
So is it true? Yes, it's definitely true. This person is against me. They don't like me. It's just terrible. Then, okay, so how can we prove that? What evidence do you have? What can you go find out? What conversations do you need to have to, to actually back that up or the other way around? How could we find out, you know, if this person maybe just had a bad day, you know, um, maybe they were just in a bad mood. So that's how I'd start. Okay. Okay. So this is, a, sorry, I think I took that the wrong way when you first said it. It's not something that the, the person you're coaching should ask the other person. They come up with something and, and they say, Ooh, is that true? That's, that's very confrontational. You're asking them in the, in, uh, in a moment of retrospection, is this really true? You had this reaction. Let's unpack it and see, is this, was this just your reaction? What's the evidence for it? What's. Yeah, exactly. You got it. So conversation, Brandy, if you were my client and you were coming to me to say, you know, so-and-so doesn't like me, they're holding me back, they're making things awful for my team, I would say, Randy, is that true? What evidence do you have? And we'd go from there. And so what kind of things should they be doing with that? So you unpack some of this, say, okay, maybe they just had a bad day, but it's still, it's had a negative reaction, it's blocked me, it's, I've had problems. They may not have come in with a bad intent, but it's had a bad effect on me, on my team, on what we're trying to get done. How did the, you coach them to to then go back and work with the person that they've had a bad experience with? Well, it's it can go in so many different directions, right? That's it's that's why it's sometimes hard to go down the hypotheticals and conversations. But one of the tools that I do use often when it comes to that kind of relationship is this a sphere of influence. Um, tool that's a, a common coaching tool. And I think today we'll be able to kind of touch on some of the various more common coaching tools that people can try out for themselves as well. So Sphere of Influence was created by Franklin Convey, I think it was. So not by me. Um, sometimes I use it in different ways, but it was created by somebody way smarter than me. And the whole idea is to, um, the Sphere of Influence is actually made of three circles, right? There's a, a small circle inside, like a kind of a core or a nucleus, and then a slightly larger circle on the outside, and then a third great big circle on the outside of that. So that nucleus, that core is called um, the, the circle, the sphere of control. The second circle is a sphere of influence. The third is um, concern. So what we do in this type of situation when we're using this sphere of influence is we use it as a way to kind of map out where's the opportunity for us to take action and where is where is there space for us to realize that this is completely outside of my control, outside of my concern, and it's something I just have to let go. So the way we'd work through it is simple question, again, um, for that core. We'd start in the core with... Um, sphere of control. And I'd ask you what's really within your control in this situation. And the thing is, when you think about it and stop and reflect on it for a moment, the only thing that's really within your control is your own actions and your own behaviors and your own emotions, right? You can't control what this detractor is doing. You can't control what they're saying or what they're feeling. So it kind of brings us back to the very core of the situation and saying, like, what, what is really within your control? What, what do you own in this situation? 
So we start by taking a look at that. The next um, circle then is sphere of influence. And with sphere of influence, that's the action area, right? So what can you actually influence here? Um, and we'll, um, if we're meeting face-to-face, we'll actually write it out on a piece of paper and kind of draw this together, which is a nice way to think through a situation and kind of and ground it a bit as well. So areas within our influence, it's interesting because I often see clients try to put a lot of things in influence mm-hmm. that's really, really doesn't belong there, right? Because again, they might be within their control, um, but it's not something they can actually take action on that will make a difference. And then the third sphere then is concern. And concern is where you write down or you consider everything that's like that you, it's not within your control. It's not within your influence. It's something that's just out there that you can't do anything about, right? Like for example, let's say the C, there's going to be a new CEO in the organization and that's going to impact you directly and your team and your strategy and all of that. Most likely you're not going to be able to influence that, right? Most likely you're not, you really can't control that decision. But it's, you know, it's something that's making you anxious. So I would put that in the concern bucket, right? And often what ends up in that sphere of concern are things that we just have to let go of. We can either fight it and try to hold on to that, or we can accept it and let it go and leave space for us to consider what's in our control or what's in our influence. I always think of this stuff as like the serenity prayer, you know, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So it's just, it's, it is, but you know, it's really hard to say like, that's not my control. That's not my influence. That's a concern I have and I can't do a darn thing about it. So in dealing with a detractor, we'd sit down and say like, all right, with, with whatever's going on now between you and this, this other person, what's within your control? Maybe how have your own behaviors, your own actions, and your own, own emotions contributed to the situation? Then thinking about what could you actually take action on and put that into your sphere of influence. And this kind of leads me on to the next bit, actually, which is, for me, it's an, another kind of common thing that can come up, which is just sort of general tension at work, sort of blocking the effectiveness of teams or or of individuals, whether it's, you know, tension created or experienced, you know, directly by you, or it's just like general in, in the team. How do you help people with this type of challenge? So conflict and tension. Yeah, it's just always going to be there, isn't it? No matter how good we think things are going, there's always going to be these moments of um, disruption, it's just normal. You're bringing humans together to work on a project or on a, on a product or whatever it might be. There's going to be some tension. So I often use something called the Cartman Drama Triangle and created by Dr. Cartman. Again, not me, somebody else very <laughs> smart, uh, much smarter than me. But the idea is on the triangle, there are three different roles. And we most likely play each of these roles at some point in a tense situation. So at one point in the triangle is the victim role, right? And that's when it's poor me, poor me, poor me, no matter what I do, I can't get this figured out. I can't get it right. I'm hopeless. I'm helpless. Poor me, right? We've all been there and had that feeling. Um, Then there's the rescuer role at another end, another peak of the triangle. 
point to the triangle. And the rescuer role is the hero, right? It's, all right, victim, I'm going to take care of everything. Don't you worry. I got this, right? And this is often where I see leaders holding this rescuer role, going to save the day, often, you know, thought of as like as the hero. Um, and then we have the persecutor role, which is the third tip of the of the triangle. And the persecutor role is kind of a bully, right? A bit manipulative, will blame the, the victim and the rescuer for whatever's going on, um, will criticize them, just overall not helpful, right? Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because within any situation, within a day, within a meeting, within a conversation, we could hold, each hold all of, all of these different roles. We move around, right? It's very rare that one person is just constantly the victim. And what I, I've seen with leaders as we're talking through, if there's a disruptive moment, a time of conflict, whatever is going on that's not going well, and we talk about this, and they can pick out right away where they are, who they are. So, or they could pick out, I, I love to be the hero or the rescuer. That's me. But right now I feel like a victim. And that's why I'm really bummed out. I'm really sad about what's going on and I don't know how to get out of it. So we do move around. But I, when there are conversations about conflict and tension, I like to talk through that model because I think it's something that we could all identify with um, at one point or another and then have a really good conversation around how you could flip that, how you could flip your behavior. And victim becomes more of a creator role, right? How could you start to realize that, You've got the power and the capability to figure this stuff out on your own. You can solve problems for yourself. Um, and the rescuer, the, the hero, leader, becomes more of a coach, asking, how can I help instead of stepping in and taking care of everything? And the persecutor, the bully, kind of the jerk of the situation, becomes more of the challenger, right? And they're going to, it doesn't mean they're going to step back, but they're going to do it in a constructive way. So we talk about we start out with the first triangle, and then we talk about where are you? How are you feeling? How did you get here? Do you want to be here? What role would you rather hold? And how can we get you there? Nice. I love that. Yeah. I'm mentally playing through lots of examples in my head of like, oh, I totally could have done that in a different way. <laughs> it's weird, isn't it? Once you start to sit back and think about it. I Yeah, I kind of, I like it too. Okay, Kate. So uh, a challenge for at least one of those roles is when you've gone from being an IC to a manager or stepping up and really leading teams. And now you're dealing with teams that aren't necessarily pulling their weight. They're not hitting the goals that you, that you expect or that the business needs them to. Yeah. You know, this is something I've heard, uh, People like Matt LeMay talk about recently, and, and Marty Kagan just did an article about product management theater, where mm. you know you're doing all the the things right, but you're not actually delivering. Your team isn't delivering business value. So when you're not leading, when the team isn't meeting expectations, and you need to coach that team, or you need to change the way you're uh, working with that team, how do you how do you encourage people to change that? How do you encourage them to go from you know being a manager in that situation and handle it well? Yeah, it's one of the things that I focus on and I pick up on right away when you when you ask that question is the word expectations. So in coaching, in my coaching practice, we really try to identify expectations and when they come up and what those might lead to. Because there's another great executive coach, so I'll, I'll name drop, and his name is Steve Chandler. And he talks a lot about how toxic expectations are 
and how disappointing and how frustrating they can be for people when they're, they're just kind of set out there. So I think a lot of times from what I've seen and even my own experiences going back a ways now, um, we do have expectations for our teams, but they're not clearly communicated, right? I, as new leader or manager, might ex- have an expectation that my team knows exactly what they need to do and how to do it. And I've probably not had any sort of a clear conversation with them about that. So what I really encourage um, leaders and teams to do is to sit down and move from having these kind of vague, foggy, really dangerous expectations and shift those into clear-cut agreements, which sounds kind of like hokey, hokey pokey, hokey spokey. Sounds a little weird, but it's basically just getting what's in your head and the expectations you might have on somebody else and sitting down and talking through it with them and maybe even writing down what are we agreeing to right? A lot of times in meetings, even, this is interesting. I I did a a beta run of this coaching course that we we talked about at the beginning of of the podcast, did a beta run in Q4. And one of the participants was saying she, and we talked about expectations and agreements, and she said she was going back and she had tried it out in all of her meetings that she had the following following week to try to make sure that no one was leaving with expectations, but people were leaving with a clear understanding of the agreement that they had made. So she was playing with that and even just a simple line at the end of the conversation, the end of a meeting, um, can we agree that X? Have we agreed Y? So it doesn't have to be a big thing, but it's actually starting to work into your leadership practice, um, this notion that you might have something in your head that somebody else is has just not latched onto and just taking a few moments to actually sit down and clearly state what you're thinking to make sure it matches what they're thinking can move you from, you know, my team's not meeting my expectations to my team understands what our agreements are. And then if they, for some reason, still are not meeting that agreement, you've got a clear cut, a clear cut kind of dialogue already in progress that you can revisit and start from. Yeah, I love this. It sounds really, really helpful. And again, I can, (laughs) I'm just thinking about scenarios that I've been in very recently with my team where I'm like, so my expectation is for you to do this. And they've just gone, all right, okay. But uh, that hasn't actually been a dialogue there at all. They've just gone, I better go and do that then. Um, So yeah, I need to go and revisit those conversations (laughs) for sure. Um, I'm so glad we dug into this in in detail. It's been really helpful. Thanks, Kate. My pleasure. (laughs) And I know that one of the other things that we were talking about earlier was kind of powerful questioning. So, and in my experience of coaching, kind of having those really open-ended questions as well and and like really practicing that question format so that you're really getting the person that you're coaching to open up or like getting people that you're you're meeting with to 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 open up and um and talk more about the situation but in in your experience what kind of makes like a a good open-ended question in a in a coaching scenario i i love that one like is it true but do you have any others that are a part of your arsenal, if you like. Yeah. Well, I guess just some overall guidelines for um, questions, for coaching questions. 
first off, I'm going to say there's no perfect question. Because I think when I first started my very first coaching training back in 2017, I was just convinced that if I didn't have that the right question would break everything open, right? I would be like super coach because I'd come up with like the perfect question for the perfect moment. And it, it doesn't work that way, right? But there are some things that everybody can try out for themselves as they're starting to take more of a coaching approach um, to their work. So one is just keep the question really simple. Keep it short. You know, is it true? Nice one, right? Nice and short, but gets the point across. So try to not be wordy. Keep it short and succinct. Keep it open-ended, of course. So we're talking about what questions, when, how. And the reason you want to do that is because you want to start a conversation. You want to start a dialogue. You don't want to shut it down with a yes or a no. Also, don't start uh, open-ended questions that are great with coaching are not, don't start with why. So don't start with a why. Why? Because why can kind of be judgmental feeling, right? If if your coach comes to you or your boss comes to you and says, well, why did you do that? You know, why did you think that was a good idea? You automatically, I don't know about you, but like my shoulders get a bit tense and I'm like, oh gosh, I don't know why I did that. But also, you know, if we knew why we did something or we didn't do something, we probably wouldn't have done it that way in the first place. So I just feel like why is a waste of time. Let's not go to why. Let's do what and when and how and all those great questions. Ask your questions with sensitivity, right? Um, and these questions are not meant to be status update questions. What's happening with your project, right? It's not that type of thing. But it could be something like, you know, out of curiosity, how is this going? Maybe something like that. So ask them with sensitivity. Give space for somebody to answer and respond. I know we all are very busy in our in our, especially in our one-on-ones, and we just want to get certain information. Um, but you need to give space for somebody to actually answer the question and not interrupt them, right? Um, it's we call it. A, I call it a warm silence. Let there be a warm silence. Let the question. Let the answer come out, and don't feel bad about following up and asking like, and what else? You know, and tell me more. And what else? You'll always know if you've asked a good question. When sometimes I get a wow. I've never thought of that, which makes <laughs> makes you feel like maybe I'm onto something. Or there's silence. Silence is like the best thing ever. I love when there's, I used to get freaked out when there was silence in a coaching conversation, but now I think it's like, it's, it's just awesome. It means we're on to something and they're actually taking a moment and stepping back and thinking. So that's really super cool. Some other coaching questions that I think are awesome um, is because with coaching, a lot of times I'm trying, I have this vision of an iceberg, right? When I, when I get into coaching conversations and often what we get into in in our one-on-ones or other leadership conversations is just the tip of the iceberg, right? It's what's above the waterline. We need to get down below it. So we need our questions to really dig into there as much as possible into the, what are the patterns and the behaviors and the actions that can help us understand why our team member is doing something or isn't doing something, why they might be blocked. Um, so, Another great question, I think, is what's the real challenge here for you? You know, mm-hmm. a lot of times somebody will, will come up with all the details, all the, the top level stuff, but what's the real challenge here for you? 
I love telling people that I'm coaching that uh, one of the things I like to do with them is ask them inconvenient questions. You know, they probably already know the answer to things, but they haven't given themselves permission to consider it. They haven't stopped. So so asking them an inconvenient question does exactly what you said. It gives, makes them stop. It makes them silent. It makes them think for a moment and say, wow, okay, I guess I really need to to actually deal with this and uh, and go there where and I was letting myself off easy. But as you said, this is this isn't easy. This took me years to learn how to do and I'm still learning how to do it better. It's something it sounds like you've spent a lot of time developing. So what's your advice for people how to get better at this? Uh, whether it's it's asking themselves the questions or asking others those those questions. It's practice, right? It it really really is. Um and I think when we do decide to bring coaching into our kind of our leadership toolkit, there's a tendency to try to make everything a coaching conversation. And I think one of the first things we need to learn is not everything needs to be a coaching conversation. That's not the idea. You're not in an actual a coaching session with a, with an accredited coach. You're, you're with your manager who sometimes might need to be directive, right? And just find out what's going on and give some advice or whatever it might be. But the idea is that there's also space for that that leader, that manager, to have these more coaching types of dialogue. Um, so yeah, it takes practice. In the course, I encourage uh, people who members or participants who are practicing um, on their team members when they go back to work the next day to actually let people know what they're trying. You know, so build some awareness because otherwise. You know, if you step into a one-on-one and you're re- you're doing it in a very different way, instead of asking about status questions or what might be going on with a product or a project, you're asking more personal development questions to help the other person equip themselves to solve the problem. It's a huge shift, right? Um, it's a huge shift for the leader, but it's also a huge shift for the person who's receiving this type of this type of conversation and, and question. So I encourage people when they are going to start, when they are going to practice, let people know they're doing it and make sure they're okay with it. They may not want to, right? It's not something everybody's into. And that's okay. Um, so yeah, those are just some of the things to think about, I think, when you're getting going. Thanks, Kate. I was going to ask you how you practice coaching. So we have now covered that off as well, but that's really helpful. The, one of the kind of final areas we were going to touch upon before we have to wrap up, sadly, is how we coach people through making the right decision because decision making is like such a critical part of um, of our jobs as products people and product leaders, you know, what kind of coaching tools can be really helpful in this scenario? Yeah, there's a lot of pressure on leaders to make the right decision, right? And so that often comes up in our our coaching conversations. And one of the real basic tools that we use is something called the waterline. And it's something that I learned about from um, Gore-Tex, the organization who builds Gore- who makes Gore-Tex. Um, and they have a really interest- interesting kind of organizational structure and setup. It's very autonomous, right? It's very self-managed. Um, so when it comes to decision-making, they have this concept where if you think of a, a boat, right, in the water, floating along, and if there's if the decision, if there's um, a hole in the boat that's above the water line, 
most likely it's okay for you to go ahead, right? In a way, it's it's a reversible piece of damage to the to the boat. It also could be thought about as um, it's a reversible decision, right? So you're not going to harm the, the organization or the boat in a way that can't be fixed. However, if there's a hole below the waterline, that's more serious, right? You might be creating or causing irreparable harm if you move ahead. So just it, it kind of simplifies this, this decision that leaders or all the decisions that leaders have to have to make, just asking, is this above the waterline or below the waterline? And if it's below the waterline, who do you need to talk to? You know, what additional guidance do you need? Is there data that you need to find that you don't have, you know, quantitative or qualitative? So it's just a simplistic way of thinking about um, where are you with the decision-making process? And the vast majority of our decisions can actually be be considered pretty thoughtfully with the waterline conversation and thinking of that tool above the waterline, below the waterline. And I guess um, there are probably scenarios where if you have a decision that's below the waterline, you can think of a way to de-risk it so that it's above the waterline and, and, you know, do a test that is reversible or, or whatever it is. So yeah, absolutely. What do you need to do to, f- to figure out, you know, how you said it exactly right, you know, how to de-risk the situation? Um, do you need to talk to somebody? Do you need to run a, a run a test? Whatever it might be. But it doesn't mean that you're in serious trouble. It means you've identified the fact that you need to do more before mm-hmm. you make a decision. Kate, this has been fantastic, but we're starting to to get towards the end of the conversation. Uh, you said earlier, though, that uh, not every conversation when you're a manager should be a coaching conversation. But on the other hand, there are so many times when I've been in places where the one-to-ones and everything else just become status updates and, and uh, delegation meetings, and there is no coaching at all. So mm-hmm. how do we start to adopt a coaching culture in the business in general and use that when it's appropriate? Well, I think, I think there are two different things to think about there. So one is, how do we start a coaching culture? And I think that is very much you practicing, right? And you talking to people about what you'd like to do and what, you know, what interests you in coaching um, and what you're hoping to bring to their own development. Because at the end of the day, coaching is not about you developing somebody else. It's you equipping them to develop themselves, right? So this just can't be something you are enforcing on someone else. So if you want to start a coaching, coaching culture, um, start talking to your team members and your, your managers, your peers about what your interest is there and why you think that's important. And, you know, kind of like any kind of culture change, you guys well know that you start small and once it, it starts to build some energy, then you attract more attention and it can grow and it can spread. Um, so I'd say this is something that, you know, one person in an organization can start to play with, um, with kind of acceptance from those around them. And you're right. A lot of times when it comes to our one-on-ones, they are status updates. You know, we just need some information. And I often, I've sat in on some of those one-on-ones with some of my clients and they all say, 
to their to um, their coachee or their team member. You know, I'd like to have um, you know give you some coaching feedback through coaching, or let's have a coaching moment. And I, I'm always like just so intrigued by like what are these coaching moments? And they're often not coaching moments at all. They're often um, the leader or the manager telling their team member what to do or where they did something wrong. So if you are wanting to bring coaching into uh, your one-on-ones, I would start out by making it a separate session. So let's say you meet once a week or twice a month or whatever it might be. Make one of those sessions a, a coaching session if your team member is up for it, right? Keep it separate because I think in the, it's worthy of like that attention and the space to have a different kind of conversation, and as you practice, as you get better, you know, get more comfortable with it, then it can become something perhaps that you move into and out of more, more freely and in a more fluid way. Um, but initially, I'd probably keep it a bit separate <laughs> um, and, and see how you do. This is music to my ears because this is exactly what I do. <laughs> <laughs> I have my one-to-ones and then I have my coaching sessions and we do like generally do like a coaching session a month and then one-to-ones every week which is seems to work quite well that's awesome um thank you (laughs) I mean it was your idea too so (laughs) we're all in it together man yeah (laughs) um how long does it take to get good at coaching I can't answer that because I'm still not there yet. You know, like I'm practicing (laughs) all the time. It's a fascinating space. And I think that's what's attracted it to me. Um, Because we're talking about human behavior um, and we're talking about human to human connection and conversation at the end of the day. And there's so much that layers into that. So, um, yeah, sometimes I do get frustrated when I hear managers or other people say like, oh, I'm a, yeah, I'm, I'm a coach. I'm great at it. I got it down. I, I find that hard to believe because even the really great ones that I've had the pleasure and honor of working with practice all the time. And coaches mm-hmm. are extremely, kind of like product people, extremely curious, right? They're always wanting to learn more. So I don't know if I'll ever sit back and say like, yeah, I got this, right? I'm done. Um, just, you know, just watch me go. Probably not. Um, so I think it's something that you just, you, you start to work at. And if it's something that attracts you and pulls you, then you just keep going. Kate, I'm going to, I'm going to argue with you on this one because I've had these conversations with you once or twice in the past. I know you're good at this, Oh, thanks. Uh, but it's, I think you're right that the attitude of being humble, being curious, and always striving to get better at it is an essential part of being a good coach. Yeah. It does, yeah. But don't please don't let it stop you from also knowing that you're not bad at this. Okay. No, I don't feel like I'm bad at it. I just feel like I'm always learning. So I don't know if I'll ever reach that that peak of like, oh, I'm I'm there. I got it. You know, watch me. <laughs> um, so, but thank you very much, Randy. I appreciate that. Ah, and on that note, we have to wrap it up there. But Kate, it's been so good talking through all of these tools and scenarios. And I've learned loads. So thank you very, very much. Thank you. My pleasure. And just to say also, every one of the tools I talked about today, you can find on my website, 
which I'll just be really descriptive. It's katelito.com. <laughs> Not too hard to find. I'm sure it'll be show notes. But if you want to find out more about any of them, they're all there. Um, so you can go read and download worksheets and all that cool stuff. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, guys. So nice to see you and talk to you. The Product Experience is the first and the best podcast from Mind the Product. Our hosts are me, Lily Smith. And me, Randy Silver. Lou Ron Pratt is our producer and Luke Smith is our editor. Our theme music is from Hamburg-based band POW, that's P-A-U. Thanks to Arnie Kittler, who curates both Product Tank and MTP Engage in Hamburg, and who also plays bass in the band for letting us use their music. You can connect with your local product community via Product Tank, regular free meetups in over 200 cities worldwide. If there's not one near you, maybe you should think about starting one. To find out more, go to mindtheproduct.com forward slash product tank. <laughs>